again, it is so great to be with you all today and just to celebrate what Jesus has done for us. Looking forward to Easter. So Matthew chapter 21, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there with her foal. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning, we ask that you would prepare our hearts for the coming of Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a date that I don't think I'll ever forget is April 12, 2018, almost three years ago. It was the day that our youngest son, Ezra, was born. Heather was about nine months pregnant, and she could tell the day had come. She could tell things were going on inside. It was the day. So we called our parents. My, my parents took our older two, Asher and Hallie, so Heather and I would be free to go to the hospital at the right time. But uh, it wasn't immediately that she needed to go to the hospital, so we had a, a bit of a free evening. It was kind of nice. We went out to eat some dinner, then we came back to the house, and we're just waiting, waiting for the, the time. So um, I thought, you know, this is a nice little evening. At the time, I was taking an online class, Hebrew, biblical Hebrew. I needed to do an exam, and I thought, the kids aren't here. This would be a good time for me just to get this exam done. So I start the exam. It's online. And Hebrew is not my easiest subject. It takes a lot of brain power. It takes some time. So I'm trying to knock out this Hebrew, working through it, kind of in the middle of everything. And then I hear Heather say, Alan, it's time. I'm thinking, okay, um, Heather, I'll do whatever you need to do. Do we need to leave right now? Can I spend a little more time on this? She says, hurry. So I start like going into Hebrew hyperspeed the best I can, trying to like work on this, work on this, work on this. Then a few minutes later, she says, Alan, my water broke. And I said, do I have any longer? And she said, no. So I finished whatever. I just, I don't know what I did. It was done. So we got in the car. I confess. I did not obey the speed limit on this occasion. We were going very fast. We got to the hospital, and um, I was talking to Heather about this yesterday. We think it was around half an hour between the time we arrived at the hospital and by the time we were holding Ezra in our hands. He came so fast, way faster than our other two. I remember calling my mom on the phone to tell her that Ezra had arrived. She thought I was calling to let her know that we got safely to the hospital. That's how fast it all happened. And I just, I look back and I think, man, I had a certain plan. I had a certain schedule. That's how I like to do things, schedule things out. I'll do my Hebrew exam and then this and then this and then this. Ezra had a schedule too, and it had no regard for my schedule. Ezra, Ezra arrived when he arrived, and I wasn't prepared. I, I got caught off guard. I was thinking about Hebrew, but Ezra came. Are we ever caught off guard when God enters into our life? Whenever God moves in our life. Are we ever like caught off guard? Well, today we're going to look together at a passage of a time in Jesus's earthly ministry, his last days on earth when he arrived, when he arrived in Jerusalem. And we'll look at, were the people there ready? Were they prepared when Jesus came? 
or were they caught off guard? And as we look at this together, I hope that we'll be able to take away three big ideas on how we can be prepared when God comes in our life. Now, of course, Jesus, he arrived in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. So how does that apply for us today? Well, I think there's a few ways that this applies to us today. One, we know that Jesus will come once again. He's gonna come visibly, bodily. We don't know when, but we don't wanna get caught off guard. Another sense in which God is coming to our lives might be, he may be coming in a season to direct us to a new place of ministry. He might be calling us to a new way to serve him. And we don't wanna miss that. We want to be prepared with eyes to see. We don't want to years down the road look back and say, wow, God was really trying to lead me somewhere and I missed it because I wasn't prepared. And then one other way, very concrete way, is that a week from today, it'll be Easter. I, was doing. I can think of different times in my life where I've shown up on an Easter Sunday to church and I didn't really even know it was Easter that day. I just wasn't really looking at the calendar and I showed up and I celebrated Easter but I didn't really take in the fullness of what I could have if I had been prepared. So how can we prepare our hearts for what God is doing, for his arrival in our lives? That's what we'll look at this morning. That's the big question. So as we turn to Matthew 21, three ways that we can be prepared for Jesus's arrival. The first, to prepare for Jesus's arrival, see him. To prepare for Jesus's arrival, see him. I don't know a better way to phrase this, but what I mean is have eyes to see Jesus, perceive him, discern him, study him, look at Jesus. There's a lot of voices in our culture today, as there was in Jesus's day, telling us about who Jesus is and what he is about. But I want to look today at the source himself, Jesus. Look at what he did, what he said, and let him tell us who he is. So let's see him together. I'm going to read the first seven verses in Matthew 21. When they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus then sent two disciples telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you should say that the Lord needs them and immediately he will send them. This took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Tell daughter Zion, look, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and they laid their robes on them and he sat on them. This moment as Jesus arrives at Jerusalem was a pinnacle moment in Jesus's ministry. Way back in Luke, Luke chapter 9, he had looked forward to this moment. We're told here when the days were coming to a close for him to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him and on the way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him, but they did not welcome him because he determined to journey to Jerusalem. The ESV renders this, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus had this passionate resolve, this determination to go to Jerusalem. And why? What was this mission of his all about? If you want to know someone, if you want to see someone for who they are, you need to know what they're passionate about. When I was in college, I went to the University of Cincinnati. We, were, we had this Baptist campus ministry. It was so much fun. And a lot of times new people would come and visit. There'd be new freshmen or just people who want to check out what we're doing. And an easy icebreaker question was, what's your major? 
because it gives us a, a glimpse into what they're about, what they're interested in, what their future aspirations are. Or if you're in an interview, you might be asked a question like, what are your hobbies? What are your passions? What are your accomplishments? It's helpful to see what someone is passionate about, to see them. Well, if we ask Jesus questions like that, he may answer, he's passionate about this mission to Jerusalem. But why? Well, we're given a clue in Matthew 16. Back in Matthew 16, we're told, from then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and be raised the third day. Jesus starts to say that he's going to die. He's going to go to Jerusalem and die. And it seems like no one really understands this mission except for Jesus. Well, now Jesus arrives. His, his journey to Jerusalem has come upon him, and he's there. And as he arrives on the scene, on the Mount of Olives, he would have been able to have a good view of the city, of the temple area. Now, Jerusalem was extremely significant to a Jewish person in the first century. It was central to Jewish existence. It's where the temple was. It's where the sacrifices were made. It's steeped in Jewish history, connecting back to Abraham and David. And Jesus doesn't just show up at any random time. He shows up for the annual Passover. And people from all over the Roman Empire would come to Jerusalem at this time during the year for the Passover. It's thought in the first century that Jerusalem typically had a population around 30,000 people, but it would swell to around 300,000 people during the Passover. Can you imagine that? The, the logistics of going from 30,000 people to 300,000 people. People having to figure out where they're going to eat, where they're going to stay, the, the crowd flow of people moving through. And uh, at this time, it was tense. You can imagine so many people, massive riots could happen, and there was a widespread belief that the Messiah was coming. This is the climate that Jesus approaches as he comes to Jerusalem. And he makes a strange move here. As he's on his way, he asks that a colt, a young male donkey, be brought to him. Why? Jesus, why do you want a little donkey? Mark Strauss explains, pilgrims coming to Jerusalem for one of the festivals would normally approach the city on foot. Yet Jesus intentionally sends his disciples to procure a young donkey, one which has never been ridden before. The scene is particularly striking since Jesus is never depicted elsewhere in the Gospels as riding an animal. Why at this point? The most likely answer is that Jesus intentionally imitated Zechariah 9.9. And that's what we're told by Matthew. Jesus is intentionally fulfilling scripture. There was this Old Testament hope, this, this long-awaited hope that a Messiah, a king figure, would come. And there was this prophet named Zechariah in the Old Testament who latched on to this, who saw that this king would one day come. Zechariah wrote towards the end of the Old Testament period, but still hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Zechariah, if you've read the book, it's really crazy. There's like all these images that he has, but it is a favorite for the New Testament gospel author. Zechariah is cited more than any other Old Testament book in the passion narratives, in the narratives about the last days of Jesus's life. So part of what Zechariah sees is that this king would come. We can see this clearly in Zechariah 9. Check this out, Zechariah 9, starting in verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. 
Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The bow of war will be removed and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Jesus is inaugurating the fulfillment of this prophecy. The king has come. He's riding on this donkey. And this is the king who will one day bring peace from one side of the world to the other. He is coming. And for those who have eyes to see, he is fulfilling scripture. He's showing himself. For those who know their Bibles, for those who are willing to see, Jesus is showing who he is. One way that Jesus likes to show who he is often is by connecting himself to Old Testament prophecy about him. I told you about when Ezra was born. It was a crazy day, but we were preparing for Ezra for quite a while before that day he was born. One way we prepared was we got ultrasounds. You know, like we'd go to the doctor and we could see on a screen what amazing work God was doing inside of Heather. God was crafting this beautiful little person. And we got this unique view that we don't really get to see anymore because we could see inside of him. We could see his beating heart. We could see his ribs forming. And we got this sense of what he was made to do for the, the purpose for which he was built because God gave him all these things so he could live his life. This may be a little bit of a stretch, but if you think about the Old Testament, it's kind of like an ultrasound, in a sense, of this coming Savior. Because when we look at the Old Testament, we see the foundation of the storyline that Jesus comes and fulfills. We see the problem that he comes to solve. We see the brokenness in this world due to our sin, due to Adam and Eve's sin, and on and on. We see this expectation that there'll be this kingly figure, but he'll also be a suffering servant. We, we see the mission. And then when Jesus steps into history, he's connected to that. He is the fulfillment of that. It's like we could anticipate him through the Old Testament, but now we see him in the flesh. And then when Ezra was born, our son Ezra, we could see him in a new way now. We, we weren't just looking at ultrasound pictures. We still do like to look at those sometimes, but now we have him in the flesh. And every day we get to know him a little better. And it's awesome. Before Ezra was born, we had Asher and Hadley. And so we, we did the boy thing, we did the girl thing. And I kind of thought maybe Ezra, it's another boy thing, you know? It's just going to be like Asher duplicated. But that's not true. Ezra is his own person. Whereas Asher likes dinosaurs, Ezra likes trucks and ambulances and mechanisms. And every day we spend with Ezra, we learn more about who he is. It's so cool. In my experience, the more I learn about and hang out with Jesus, the more I see there's more, there's more I didn't know, there's more to treasure, there's just more and more and more to value and love and be in awe of. There's this guy, uh, Tim Mackey, he's a co-founder of the Bible Project, it's this group that puts together Bible, uh, videos about the Bible. He's a really cool dude, and uh, his story, his testimony kind of resonates with this idea of getting to see and know Jesus more and more. He shares that as a teenager, he was a skateboarder. He started going to this ministry called Skate Church. He says, I was not interested in Jesus at that time. I was way more interested in skateboarding, smoking a lot of pot, and partying on the weekends. 
But every week, I would kind of sit at the back and kind of tune out. As the years went on, I started to pay attention to the talks about Jesus. And Jesus just became so compelling to me. And so after three years, the summer, I was 19, and I became a follower of Jesus. Man, I resonate with that. Jesus became so compelling. Jesus is so compelling. So, do you see Jesus? Do you have eyes to see him based on his terms, on what he has done? Do you see him as the fulfillment of the, of the Old Testament? Do you love to see him and spend time with him more and more? How, how can we? Here's some practical ways that this week we can see Jesus. One, hang out with him a little bit each day. I mean, if you're not used to hanging out with Jesus, just try five minutes each, each day. You can pray to him. Say, Jesus, I'm new to this thing. Will you please just like show me who you are? Help me understand you. Read the Gospels, the first four books in the New Testament. They're about Jesus, about his life and ministry. And this week in particular, if you want to, one approach could be to read the last chapters in Matthew. Right now we're studying Matthew chapter 21. Next week on Easter, we're going to be in, in Matthew chapter 28. So you could read seven chapters, one each day this week, and really get a sense of what Jesus' last days were like and really be prepared for Easter Sunday. If you're here today and you do know Jesus, you know him well, you know about him, is there someone that you can share him with? Think about it. Was there someone who shared Jesus with you? Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a friend. How did that change your life? I remember in college, I had been a Christian for a while. I'd grown up being a Christian, and I knew Jesus, and I loved him, and it was awesome. But one incident that just put a light bulb on for me in a new way was when I was hanging out one night with some friends, and there was this guy, Josh. He's older than me, smarter than me, and he started to explain to me how the Old Testament was this narrative that Jesus came to fulfill. Even back from Genesis, from the fall of man in Genesis 3, it was anticipating a coming Savior, and I had never thought about it like that before. And like Tim Mackey said, Jesus just became so compelling to me in a way that he had never been before. Of course, I knew him before, but it's just that idea of learning more and cherishing more Jesus as we grow as believers. And I've never stopped seeing him like that since that moment. So is God leading you, if you know about Jesus, to tell someone else about Jesus, to start a Bible study, to lead a life group? Who is there in your life? Maybe it's your kids that you can teach to see Jesus. So first, to prepare ourselves for Jesus' arrival, see him. See him. But of course, just seeing him, that's not enough. When we see Jesus more and more for who he is, it leads us to respond in worship. So second, to prepare for Jesus' arrival, not only do we see him, we worship him. To prepare for Jesus' arrival, worship him. Let's look now at the response of the crowd in Jerusalem as Jesus rode in. Starting in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 21. A very large crowd spread their robes on the, on, on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. Then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who kept following kept shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was shaken, saying, who is this? And the crowds kept saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. 
So as Jesus rides into town, people take their clothes, their cloaks or robes, and they're putting them on the ground, and this donkey he's riding is stepping on them. And other people, they take branches, probably from palm trees, which were a symbol of victory and triumph. And it's like they're saying, you are the one who is the victor. You are the one, Jesus, who has triumphed. And they praise him, inspired by Psalm 118. Hosanna, originally a plea for help, save. It came to be an expression of approval or praise. These are really awesome things. These people appear to be praising Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah and praising God in the highest heaven. I don't know about you, but sometimes... I need to praise God more. I get anxious. I get guilty. I, I have these feelings of stress. I don't know if you guys ever feel that way, but in my life, sometimes in those moments, I, I need to step back and meditate on God just for a moment and worship him. And it has this effect on me where it just puts things in perspective. The problems that I have that are so high that I can't even see past, they all come into perspective and I see, whoa, God you made this whole universe. You made me. You know me before I was born, and you can take care of whatever this little problem is. You took care of my deepest need. You sent Jesus to die in my place. You'll take care of whatever this is. Worshiping God has this healing effect on our lives where we can say, Hosanna. We can say, save me, God. I need your help. It puts us right with God. God is so big. It helps us see clearly. But I wonder... In this context, in the first century, how long-lasting was this praise that the people gave Jesus? I don't know, but we will read about just a few days later, there was a crowd also crying out to Jesus, but this time saying, crucify him. Are some of the same people a part of that crowd? Have some people changed their minds? Are they like fair-weather friends? You know, friends that hang around you when they have something to benefit from you, but then when they don't anymore, they kind of go their own way. Perhaps some of the people in this crowd, they wanted a Messiah who would come and take strategic action against Rome and provide political freedom. And maybe when they saw that Jesus was not about that at that time, that Jesus was going to be crucified, they said, I don't want anything to do with that guy. Recently, I was eating, and I wanted some water. So I got a cup, and I filled it up with water, and I set it down the table. I noticed there was a little puddle by the cup, but I didn't really think too much about it. So I stepped away for a second, then I came back, and I saw the puddle had gotten a little bit bigger, which seemed strange. And I prayed, because I was going to eat food. When I opened my eyes, there was water, like, coming, spilling onto my, onto my pants. It turned out this cup had a hole in it. I, I didn't see it at first. It looked like a great cup, but it had a hole in it. I wonder if that's kind of what's going on with these people here. They're saying the right words. They're doing the right motions. They're praising Jesus. But could it be that there's a hole in their cup for their zeal for Jesus, that over time that their true selves will be shown? One thing that we can take away from this might be that there are days where it's hard to worship Jesus. There are days where it's easy to worship Jesus, days where it looks like Jesus is coming into town victoriously and he's going to provide us with all the things we want, days where our health is good and our kids are doing well and our job is great and school's great. It's easy and good to worship God on those days. But there are other days where it's not easy, where it looks like everything we had planned is falling, that God is not in control, days where we go to the doctor and we learn we're not as healthy as we thought we were. 
Days where we go to work in the morning and come home the afternoon without a job. Days where we fail a test. Days where relationships are breaking. It is hard in those times to worship God. And there may be a temptation to put a mask on, to, to come to church and to, and to worship God, but you're not really worshiping from your heart because you're broken. But you keep this front on. You keep this mask on, kind of like that cup. You know, it's, it's really broken, but it looks good. Everyone thinks it's fine, so just keep on going. But the problem is there's a brokenness in you that only you see, and you're becoming isolated. And I think <clears throat> we're all there on some days. We need to be real with each other. We need to say to each other, look, it is hard for me today to worship God. I didn't think this was going to happen. I thought Jesus was going to come in victoriously and, and save me. It didn't turn out the way I thought it was going to. And we need to have an environment here where we're willing to be real with each other and to love each other and let brokenness be a thing. Before Heather and I lived in northern Kentucky, we lived in Louisville, and we were part of, of, of a church there. It was great, just like this church. We were in a life group there, and there was a guy in the life group. His name is Evan, and Evan had been at the church before we got there, so when we started attending this life group, we didn't know much about him, but as we learned more about him, he came from a broken background growing up. He's a, about our age, really sweet, tender-hearted guy. But one thing we learned was that when he started coming to that life group, the first night he attended that life group, apparently there was some uh, conflict, some kind of argument that happened among the members of the life group. Like, not the kind of thing you want to happen the first time, like first impression someone comes. I don't know what it was about, relationships or something. I'm, I'm not even sure. But what struck me was Evan said, because that conflict happened, that is what made him want to come and be a part of that group. And this is what he meant. He saw a group of people who could be real with each other and broken with each other and have a conflict but still love each other. And that's what he wanted. Evan had struggles he was going through in his own life. And he, he knew he wasn't perfect. He didn't want to be around a group that had it all together. He wanted to be around a group that knew they were broken, that knew they needed Jesus, and that, that would help him worship God on those hard days. So how can we worship God? How can we worship him this week? Here's a few thoughts. If you choose this week to hang out with Jesus a little bit each day, don't only read about him from the Bible, but take a moment and let that text you're reading, maybe it's a few chapters from the, the end of Matthew, and turn that into worship. Here's what I'm saying. Like in this passage we're reading right now, Hosanna to the son of David. That was a praise given to Jesus in his day, but make that yours personally. Hosanna, God, save me. God, I'm going through the situation at work right now. I'm going through the situation with this friend or with my spouse or with my kids and I pray that you would save me and I worship you, God. God in the highest, Hosanna in the highest because you can save me. So don't just read about Jesus but then turn that to a personal response of worship. So maybe it's an individual worship that you have. Maybe it's as a family. Have family worship. If you have kids, have a time where you hang out, where you read the Bible, where you pray together, and where you sing songs. It can be brief, but create a routine that will help your kids know how to worship. And maybe it's not only for you, but maybe it means this week having an eye open to someone around you who's having a hard time worshiping, whose life is experiencing brokenness, and what they need right now is someone to support them, to hold them up because they're going through a hard time, and they'll be real with you, but they need you to lean on. So be present to help others worship also. Worship brings healing in our lives.
So this week, as we prepare for Jesus' arrival, see him, worship him, but then allow that worship and that seeing to drive you to a place of obedience to Jesus by resting in him. Finally, to prepare for Jesus' arrival, rest in him. For this last point, I want to return to a, a verse that we already looked at. It's a simple verse. It's verse 7 of Matthew 21. And it says, They brought the donkey and the colt, then they laid their robes on them, and he sat on them. If you think about this account, it looks good right now, but it's not going to be good in the next few chapters. Jesus is going to be uh, rejected or let down by many people. His disciples are going to end up scattering. Peter's going to deny him. Judas will betray him. And maybe people in this crowd who will eventually be shouting for his crucifixion. But there is one in this account who was available, who was available in Jesus' time of need, who was available for Jesus. And that was this little donkey, this little cult, this young male donkey. Matthew is unique among the Gospels in that he describes there was not one, but two animals here. And it appears that there is a mother donkey with her young. Jesus, he rides on the cult, the younger of the two. Perhaps the mother was brought alongside this young cult to comfort this little cult in the midst of all these shouts and all this stuff going on. D.A. Carson, he helps explain this. He says, Mark and Luke say the animal was so young that it had never been ridden. In the midst then of this exciting crowd, an unbroken animal remains calm under the hands of the Messiah who controls nature. Thus the event points to the peace of the consummated kingdom. It's so interesting, this donkey has such a small role in this whole thing, yet it's essential. He's fulfilling prophecy as he's carrying his Messiah. And if you can think of it like a movie, you know, the camera follows Jesus. And then there's this donkey, and then you don't hear about him anymore. And the camera just stays on Jesus. This donkey had such a small role, but he was available, he was obedient, Maybe he was scared. It was a crazy crowd. But under Jesus' direction, he was calm and he did what he needed to do. I can't help but think of us. Of course, we're not donkeys. We're not animals. We're made in God's image. We're unique. But we have the opportunity to play a small part in God's grand narrative of restoration. Our lives are so small in the big picture, and we're not the stars of the story. Jesus is. But Jesus invites us, if we will rest in him, if we will step out in faith and obey him, that we can be a part of this story. The camera won't stay on us the whole time. It'll just be for a moment. Maybe it'll be scary. Maybe we'll be doing things we've never done before. The donkey had never been ridden before. But Jesus will be with us. He will calmly lead us. So this week, what can we do? What can we do to step out in faith? Perhaps uh, it means inviting someone to Easter Sunday. Maybe that's a scary thing. That's okay. Jesus will walk with you through that. Maybe it means doing a random act, a random act of kindness to someone. Maybe it means inviting someone over to your house for a gospel meal to build a relationship that could lead to a conversation about Jesus. Maybe it means joining a life group here at church. That can be scary, going and, and sharing your life with other people. Maybe it means joining church here. Maybe it means opening up your home to foster care. Maybe it means going on a mission trip with Mark. Whatever it is, it may be scary, 
but Jesus will walk with you through it and you'll be a part of his beautiful grand narrative of restoration of God bringing healing to our world. Jesus in this account is humble and that is such a radical quality. That, I think about this world we live in today, a world of cutthroat competition. I think about the, the sphere of politics and work and uh, school where it's just competition, it's cutthroat. And Jesus does something so upside down. He arrives humbly on a donkey, not in a threatening way, but lovingly. So he is our king. We are followers of him. So as we obey him, as we step out in faith and follow him, we must follow his humble example. As we do these things, we must do it with a lowly heart like Jesus. This may mean letting other people go ahead of us. Maybe while we're driving, maybe while we're walking, maybe we're in line to buy something. It may mean letting others take credit for something or letting ourselves be overlooked when we do something. Maybe it means serving our spouse when we're exhausted at the end of the day. Maybe it means serving our kids when we're going crazy and they're driving us crazy. Maybe it means turning off our iPhones and just being present at a kid's level and just giving them a little bit of time with them. Kids, it may mean humbly obeying your parents or serving your siblings. It may mean us taking time to talk with a neighbor, even though we're busy and don't have time, stopping somehow and devoting our time to a neighbor. We see Jesus at his most humble and most amazingly in what will happen next in this story. Mark Strauss says, Jesus does not enter the city riding on a war horse, ready for battle against the Romans, but rather as the humble, peace-bringing king. He will bring salvation not through physical conquest, but through self-sacrificial service. Jesus would humbly go to Jerusalem and lovingly lay down his life so that we could have eternal life. And what happens after that? Come back next week and find out. But for this week, prepare for his arrival. See him, worship him, and rest in him. One final closing story. So I told you about Ezra when he was born, that crazy day getting into the hospital and how I was caught off guard. What was so surprising to me though and amazing to me was when we brought Ezra home my parents and Heather's parents had watched our other two kids. When they came home, Asher and Hallie, their first time meeting Ezra, I was a little nervous about, because you know, sometimes older siblings aren't so keen on the idea of a new kid in town. I probably wasn't the best reacting, I'm the oldest, when, when uh, I had some younger siblings born. But Asher and Hallie were so available. They were so excited. I still remember seeing them sitting on little chairs with their arms ready to hold their new baby brother. They were so excited. They weren't caught off guard. There was nothing that they were distracted by. This was what their attention was on, the arrival of their little brother. And they were so joy-filled. So this week, as we prepare for the arrival of Jesus, may we do it with great joy. Please pray with me. God, thank you so much that you would come into our world, that we have something to celebrate, that you did arrive and that you are still at work in our lives. Lord, we pray that as we prepare this week to celebrate Easter, that we would prepare well so that when we come next week, we would experience you, that we would see you and worship you and rest in you. We pray, Lord, that as you lead our lives in new directions and call us to new places of ministry, that we would be prepared, that we wouldn't miss out, that we would see what you're doing. 
we pray also, as we anticipate your return, that we'll be ready when you come back, that you will be our treasure, and that when we see you one day, you will be our greatest joy. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.